This episode, we continue our conversation about systemic racism in Canada. This time, we focus on what decision makers can do and are doing to create opportunities for Black Canadians. Greg Fergus is a member of Parliament and chair of the Parliamentary Black Caucus. In June, the caucus issued a statement with five calls to action for Canadian governments. It's one of a number of initiatives in Canada to address anti-Black racism in our institutions and organizations. Greg joins us to share what prompted parliamentarians to issue the call and what he hopes it will achieve. We talk about how Black business and community leaders are creating opportunities for all Canadians. He also talks about gaps in our understanding that are holding us back. He's encouraged by how much momentum the push to address systemic racism has now. He doesn't expect things to change overnight, but thinks that as more people become aware of what it's like to be Black in Canada, they will act, and that change is coming. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is the Member of Parliament for Hull Elmer, Greg Fergus. Greg is an active parliamentarian and very involved in his writing and community. Greg's call is for people to invest themselves in causes that are important to them and to work together to fight isolation and create a sense of community. Greg is also very committed to the Black community. He is the chair of the Black Caucus in the Parliament of Canada, an institution that is very important to him. The Parliamentary Black Caucus was created in 2015 and includes members of Parliament and Senators from various political parties. In the midst of the Black Lives Matter rallies this year, Greg and the Parliamentary Black Caucus issued a call for all levels of government to reduce systemic racism. This episode, we're pleased to hear directly from him about why this call was necessary and what he's hoping that Canadian society can achieve to reduce systemic racism. Greg, welcome to Bright Future. Well, thank you for having me. In June of this year, the Parliamentary Black Caucus released a call to action for all levels of government to introduce changes to minimize the impact of systemic racism on Black Canadians. As chair of the Parliamentary Black Caucus, what spurred the group to issue this declaration and what are you hoping it achieves? The thing that really made us move toward action was obviously the videos that came up from the United States where we saw the brutal reality of racism and we saw how racism is not just something that's uncomfortable and awkward, but it's something that can kill. The fact that we had three videos that came out in a row, the Ahmad Arbery video, although the crime had taken place months earlier, the video had only popped up at the end of May. Then we had the Christian Cooper and the Amy Cooper video in New York City, very shortly followed by the murder of George Floyd caught in its eight and three quarter agonizing minutes that we saw it was a real gut punch i think to members of caucus as i think it was for all canadians it came to us that we should issue a declaration we should make a statement but we make statements all the time when these kind of things come up and we we're trying to figure out how should we go further and i don't remember who came up with the idea but it came up that why don't we lay out what needs to be done if we really want to take a running jump at eliminating racism once and for all, systemic racism once and for all in Canada, and really talk about the Canadian situation and to center it as to the steps that we could take. So that's what that motivated us to do so. 
I took an initial draft, and then we discussed it as a group, and we decided to set up a small review committee, took the orders from the larger group, and then we crafted a second draft. And then as a small committee, we worked that over over a period of time. And then we went back to the larger group once again. And I think it's important for your audience to understand that the people who make up Black Caucus are not just Black parliamentarians. We also believe in opening up the door so that allies can be a part of it. What I asked every member to do is, can you live with 90% of what's written? And if you can live with 90% with what's written, then sign off on it, because we're not going to get perfection in every single word. The group signed off on it, and people had said, well, I've been talking to my colleagues about this, and there's interest in my party for people to sign up. And so I said, hey, that's a great idea. Let's expand this out. We approached many parliamentarians, many political parties that we felt that would have a good chance of getting their sign-in on. It was really amazing to see the response. Pretty much more than half of both houses of parliament had signed on to the declaration. And what are you hoping it achieves? The initial goal was for government, particularly the federal government, but not limited to the federal government, for municipal and provincial governments, to take a series of steps that are really necessary necessary to eliminate the systemic racism that exists. We didn't want to have a whole grocery list of things, but we want to separate it into what started off as being the four top issues. And we actually ended up settling on five top issues, five big categories. And then we went from there and fleshed that out. It was very purposeful that we said, we're not limiting ourselves to just to what the federal government can do because the issues are deep and the issues are complex and they're interrelated. We need to speak to these issues. It gave me no small sense of satisfaction to see how well the declaration had been received by the Black communities across the country. Many letters, emails, telephone calls that we received from people saying this is a great document and one that can help them pursue their lobby efforts in their communities, whether, again, at the municipal level or at the provincial level. And sometimes also what we can do in the private sector, what we can do with community groups. It's a pretty large document. It's not a perfect document, but I think it really does speak to the reality that Black Canadians are facing. Let's dig into it, because as you said, it does contain a number of calls to action across a wide range of topics, from police reform to transforming the public service to investments in arts and culture. There's really so much to talk about within this call to action. There are three areas that struck me as having a unique set of challenges and proposed solutions that I was hoping that we could dig into. Those three are around the calls for support for the economic tools for Black business leaders, on the capital investments for the arts, and this call for disaggregated data. The call for disaggregated data was our top priority. And the reason why is that if we want to change things, we need to measure it. And although we have studies which take a look at parts of the realities that Black Canadians face, there is not the big study which takes a look at this. If we do have a big study that looks at it, it then becomes a wider study. It's not just about Black Canadians, it's about visible minority. We've long felt that visible minority hides the reality faced by Black Canadians. Over the last 25 years, are coming to terms with social policy and economic policy and how it affects Indigenous peoples. It's long and well overdue that we've done that. When we take a look at visible minorities, it doesn't look that bad. 
But when you separate it out, when you disaggregate that data and you take a look at Black Canadians and the realities faced by Black Canadians, you discover that next to Indigenous peoples, we are actually, as a group, the worst off in so many different categories. We're underperforming in the places where we want to perform well, and we're overperforming in the places where we certainly don't want to be performing. As a result, our reality gets hidden in the larger grouping of visible minorities. If we want to create social policy and economic policies that are effective, you want to make sure that you have the right data so that you can marshal your resources into those areas to get the results that you're looking for and to be able to measure it. You can't change what you can't measure. Data becomes extremely important and the proper use of data becomes extremely important. So that's why that was the first thing that we put out there. The economic side of things that you raised, that's to me where we really need to put the emphasis. Black Canadians want to create prosperity. They want to be part of the economic success story that Canada has. And yet we are not part of that. When we take a look at the studies that we were able to disaggregate the data out of, you'll see that Black businesses are performing well below what their potential could be. And a part of that is due to lack of access to capital, or if they do get access to capital, they get a smaller loan profile. When you think of economic activity, most people don't think of the Black community as being an economic power. Whereas we're 1.2 million Blacks in this country, there is a great potential for economic growth. That's a big initiative where we want to go and how we want to be seen. Let me dig into the economic side a little bit. In the declaration, it talks about the support for Black business leaders, and you highlighted that many Canadians would be shocked to learn the legal and practical barriers that had been imposed on Black Canadians and or Black communities, and that these existed well into the second half of the 20th century. What are some of those examples of legal and practical barriers that you think all Canadians should be better aware of? Look, emancipation, the official end of slavery, happened in 1834, 186 years ago. Yet since that time, true emancipation really hasn't been afforded to Black Canadians for much of that period. When you take a look at the official policies in terms of owning land, having deed to properties in Canada, that was always a barrier that was faced by Black Canadians, formally and then very much informally well into the second half of the 20th century. We're seeing some of the results of that, for example, in Nova Scotia, where African Nova Scotians are just, because of a recent court ruling, are being able to get the actual deed to the properties that their families have been on for generations. And I'm talking well over 100 years. But without that deed, you can't sell it. Or you can't sell it because no one can buy it without having an official deed. When you don't have that deed to your property, to that land that has always been yours, no one else has come onto it, the consequences of that are enormous in terms of creating wealth. If you don't have that land base by which you can establish a profile of what your assets are, well, then you're a higher risk for receiving loans from the banks. And so the banks are just less likely to extend credit to you. We know how important credit plays in terms of creating wealth that can survive from one generation to the next. That would be a perfect example of that. There's evidence that in Canada, and there's some studies which have shown that in Black-dominated neighborhoods, 
banks were highly unlikely to extend credit again for the purposes of buying into those neighborhoods or renovating the homes in those neighborhoods. So as a result, that creates systemically greater poverty or at least less wealth. That has consequences which pass on from one generation to the next. It doesn't allow Blacks to be part of the economic growth that had happened over Canada, especially in the post-Second World War days. Whereas other groups and more recent groups that would come to Canada by not facing that form of systemic discrimination had been able to create that wealth you see over time, over a couple of generations, the gap that would be created between new groups that had arrived and generations of Black Canadians who have been in place. And despite those barriers, there are significant numbers of Black business leaders. There are Black business leaders in organizations and Black business owners. And one of the things that your declaration highlights is that the pandemic has had a differential impact on Black-owned businesses. What are some of the actions that you want to see happen to support Black-owned businesses through this tough time? There are a number of initiatives that the federal government can take. We were hoping that the provincial governments and municipal governments can certainly follow that lead. One of the things is if the government can provide matching dollars or provide a fund that Black business leaders can help set up their own committees in cooperation with our financial institutions to be a place where Black business people can go, present their ideas, get mentorship, get some advice, and also secure a loan for them to start their businesses or to grow their businesses or to bring their businesses onto a more solid financial footing. But to do this in cooperation with financial institutions, with money that's put in by the government, but also hopefully matched by business leaders or business organizations, that would be a great step forward. It's not one where it's just about a handout. It's one where it's saying, look, we're going to make our own contribution to this, and we're just looking for a little bit of help to make the pot a little bit bigger so that the loan profiles can be more extensive. Just the fact that Blacks could manage that pot, that would allow us to make the necessary connections, allows those networks. Back in the 1990s, Prime Minister Chrétien set up the Team Canada trips. We'd bring business leaders, we'd go to another country, and and we would sign economic deals. And it was a very useful process for helping facilitate and to catalyze the completion of agreements that our companies were working with foreign companies or foreign governments. But the funny thing is, very shortly after these Team Canada sessions started getting up, did you know that half of the deals were not signed on the ground? Half of the deals were signed in the plane. In other words, it was people were paying to have the opportunity to meet other leaders and to realize, oh, you know what, we can cooperate, we can work out deals, and we can help each other. That was half the value proposition was being on the plane. Well, this is similar to what I would love to see here by setting up these organizations and bringing Black people together, working with financial institutions. Yes, it's important to work with financial institutions, but I'm convinced half of the, the value of it will actually be having Black business leaders meet each other Uh, learn about what each other is doing and supporting each other and creating even more prosperity, not only for the Black community, but for all Canadians. It is an incredible opportunity when you can get people into a room and have them make those connections. We certainly see that at the conference board. 
I want to connect that to another major initiative, which is focused on advancing Black leaders, and that is the Black North Initiative. How do you see this initiative fitting in with the calls of the Parliamentary Black Caucus? That initiative and others are probably three main initiatives which have come to light over the last couple of months. The Black North Initiative is an excellent one, and it fits in with the model that I was talking about in terms of working with the private sector who want to make a contribution, who want to be part of the change, who want to see uh, Black Canadians succeed as well as any other group of people in this country. Having them work in partnership with and supportive of Black business leaders to help us create those links, to help create the opportunities to grow. What we've seen over the last couple of months is a realization that a greater consciousness raising amongst business leaders and Black business leaders that there's a real opportunity here. And there's an opportunity for us to work together. And there's an opportunity for us to create wealth, not just for Black Canadians, far from it, it would be for all Canadians. I'm quite convinced that if Black Canadians and Indigenous peoples succeed, all of Canada succeeds. It's in everyone's interest to make this a reality. We've got the Black North Initiative. We have your Parliamentary Black Caucus, which is the third initiative that you're thinking of. Parliamentary Black Caucus, we're just trying to set the framework to encourage people to act. But the real work is being done by groups like Black North. But there's also the Black Opportunities Fund, which would be larger than just an economic initiative. They would want to talk about culture. They would want to talk about community supports. There's also a really big organization in Quebec that is already in the field of incubating Black businesses. It's called the Le Groupe 3737. And they've been working with a whole bunch of Black business groups in Quebec, as well as in Atlantic Canada. Those are the three big initiatives that I'm aware of that have come to light. They have been part of that awareness that had occurred since the end of May, early June. People have been working on these files for years, but there seems to have been a real awakening and saying, let's do something now because the status quo is not acceptable. We know that we can do better. We believe strongly in the potential of Canada. We want our Canada to live up to its ideals, and we need to all work together to try to make that happen. What are the things that you think that business leaders and businesses themselves should be doing to address systemic racism? I think the first thing is to have those uncomfortable conversations. And you don't have to have them with Black people. You're going to just have them with yourselves. The real question is, who's not around the table? A generation ago, or perhaps longer, we started asking ourselves that question with regards to women. How could it be possible that we are ignoring literally half of the population by not having women in leadership positions, around the boardroom tables, being part of the economic growth? It just boggles the mind. It doesn't make any sense. How is it that we have 1.2 million Black Canadians, but yet very few of them in leadership positions in our organization? I think those are the tough, uncomfortable type of questions. Outright racism is a very small factor, very small factor. I think what the big factor is, is the unconscious prejudices that we may have. That we don't even know we have, and that's what, that's what makes them so tough. But we have certain assumptions about people. And when we think of business leadership, I don't think many people think of Black leaders. Yet we know that there are some very successful Black Canadian economic leaders. Why is that? Whenever we appoint people to boards, no one 
has a bone of racism in their body, but yet the results, when you take a look at them on a large scale, you'd see very, very few black people around the boardroom table. But how did we go from no racism to this wonky result on a large scale? And each and every decision that we make is probably valid and accurate, but maybe it's because we just didn't think of asking. Maybe it might be that we don't have social interactions with Black Canadians. We need to dig a little deeper and take a look at that question as to who's not around the table. There were a number of studies which came out of Rotman. The companies which are the most diverse are the most resilient and the most successful ones. And it makes sense. For example, if you have only men around the table making decisions about their products and no women present to give input, you're really taking a big, unnecessary risk that your product will not be well seen by half of the population. They've discovered at Rotman School in their studies is that the more representation you have, you lower the risk of making a real faux pas, or you are increasing the risk of having products which appeal to the widest possible market. And that's why those organizations tend to be more resilient. You also get different ideas. There's just a different way of seeing the world when you're considered to be part of a minority. They can see the majority view, but they also can have a little step back and they can see something from a different perspective. And when you do that, that sort of a bilingualism of the mind, you're able to conceive of things that normally you and I might be house blind to. I think that's the important thing with Black Canadians. We could see things that the way the majority sees things. Obviously, that's the majority view. But we could also see some things that those who are not Black just don't see, have no reason to see, on how different policies or products or initiatives play out. That bilingualism of the mind is a strength. It's a force. And the more you have people who have different standpoints, who could see things differently, I think the fuller a picture that you can get of the potential of Canada. It should be a strength, should be an asset that you would want to have people from different backgrounds sitting around your table because they will give you a better view, a more realistic view of how things play out. The assumption is, of course, people will act on that information in good faith. And as a result, it will lead to better policies, will lead to better products, better services, and ones which can withstand the ups and downs of different market realities. That ties very closely into this idea of the disaggregated data and the need for accurate data. And there are two sides to that. Obviously, as a research organization, we completely understand why we need better data. The better data allows for better informed decision making. It allows you to see those gaps. On the other side, there is a dimension to the collection and the creation of that data that can be discomforting. You think about an organization that starts to report on how many Black Canadians are within its management team. Report zero, reports one. The revealing of that information and the asking of that question can be very difficult for an organization. The same side applies for collecting that information. There are many instances where there is a skepticism around what is this information going to be used for, particularly with racialized communities. Are we going to be creating a dynamic where the data is being used against us or to reinforce a sense of bias? 
how would you respond to both of those challenges around the need for better data and the need for people to participate in the collection and the engagement with that data to build that trust? Because it's not always there. Let's start with the latter. I think you're right. It's not about the collection of data. It's about the use of data and how you use it. Well, my advice would be uh, consult the Conference Board of Canada. <laughs> I think that you would want to speak to experts about what's the framework in which you would put around the collection of data and the use of it. You don't want to reinforce uh, social stereotypes. If you take a look at the data, you'd say, well, look at that. Although they're 3.5% of the Canadian population, they compose about 10% of the incarcerated population. Therefore, they must be criminals when studies have shown that nothing could be further from the truth. What the data shows, and this is why you have to have the proper use of data, is that Blacks tend to be more targeted for policing because there's that unconscious bias that exists. Studies have shown that Blacks and non-Blacks are equally apt to commit a crime, all other factors being held equal. Why is it that we have that overrepresentation in our prisons? Why do we have an overrepresentation of eight to nine times by indigenous peoples in our prisons. On one hand, you could use the data and just say, well, look, blacks and indigenous people are obviously more apt to commit a crime. You're looking through the telescope to the wrong end at that point. And that's why you need to have experts such as Conference Board of Canada. I think as many universities have people who can show what's the proper use, the proper framework around the use of data. It is a problem, but one that we have the tools to correct. The issue is, is that we need to collect this data. <laughs> Otherwise, we won't see the realities which are being played out. And we won't recognize that we have a problem. It's really important for us to see the numbers so that we can say, okay, how did we get here? And what are the factors which have gone into that? What steps can we take to correct those factors? We're spending our precious dollars as a private organization or as a government on initiatives, but are they actually reaching the groups which we would want to target, the groups that are experiencing the greatest problems that we want to fix? It's just logical that you would want to spend finite resources carefully and to have the greatest effect. That requires data. The collection of data is important, but equally as important, as you pointed out, is the use of that data and making sure that you're not drawing the wrong conclusions. What about corporate data, the reporting of their own progress and diversity? We have seen so many brands align themselves with the Black Lives Matter and with the idea of addressing systemic racism. And it is really important to move beyond words into actions. And one of those actions that has been recommended is be transparent on your actual diversity. But that is a difficult discussion, it seems, for some organizations. Well, it's tough. It points out that there's a lot of work to be done. But I think it's really important for these organizations not to be embarrassed by the figures. We are where we are. And now our eyes have been opened and we want to do right by our own consciences as well as by our community. We got to start somewhere. I don't expect perfection. I'm not going to hold it against companies if they take a look at their composition right now and, and the numbers are not where they would like to be. Let's work together to set out the opportunity to say, okay, look, we can't change everything overnight, nor should we. Why don't we say, here's where we are. 
and we hope to do better over a certain period of time, and then take the steps to get people in the pipeline so that you're attracting the people who you need to have at your board, but making sure that these folks come from a more diverse background. I'm not part of this folks who feel that we have to have everything resolved overnight and everybody has to be perfect on this. That's unrealistic. But I am a person who expects us to make progress, to consciously take measures to address these issues. I'd rather deal with somebody who's saying, look, here's where we are. We're not where we should be, but we engage to do it. Here's how we could set out a plan going forward. And please measure us against this very now publicly announced plan of where we want to go. And I think we'll see progress. And I think it will be a really good thing for us to do. To expect everything to be done overnight is too tough. I just don't want anybody to use that as an excuse not to do anything. I do expect everyone to put their shoulders to the wheel and to do their part for making a better cat. And I think it's in their bottom line interest to do so. What do you wish more Canadians understood about the lived realities of Black Canadians and the impact of race and racism on the lives of their colleagues, of their friends, of their neighbours? I would like people to understand how patently unfair it is to be judged not for your skills or for the content of your character, but to be judged so many different ways for a physical trait that you can't do anything about, nor would you want to do anything about. I think that's the important thing. And I think everybody's lived that at some point in their lives and just to understand how different people can experience that. I think that would be the first thing. Second thing is that by being aware of that possibility, I think that transforms people. Once you become aware of something, you really can't stop being aware of it. That forces people to see the world a little differently. I believe that once people are aware of things, then they'll act upon them. I believe that we do want to be better people. We do want to make an impact on our world and on our society. We can get there. But that's going to take work. I'm inviting everybody to get to know their neighbors a little bit better, to read books that deal with these issues. Reading is the best way to live another life, to step inside somebody else's shoes. I shouldn't say it's the best way. It's the easiest way of doing it. Perhaps the best way is just to speak to your friends and neighbors, to understand a little bit more of what they might face. Why, when I, even as a member of parliament, go into a store in a different city, chances are the store detective is going to be paying a little bit more closer attention to me, to making sure that I'm not stealing anything or shoplifting anything than other people. If I were to drive, I take the bus. But if I were to drive an expensive car, I'm way more likely to be stopped than someone who is white. If we step into those shoes, people have done it to an extent as we deal with sexism in our country. That's the reason why you've seen so many positive steps which have been taken. By no means do we understand the reality that women face, but I think more and more we've come to a realization that the actions that we take are wrong and we can't objectify women, period. I'm asking people to just extend that courtesy to other groups, including Black Canadians. You can do that for people of different sexual orientations, different religions. There's so many different ways that we can apply that. Understanding lived reality as being different, we not only become more aware of our actions and we can reduce that as a result, but I think it just leads to fuller lives as to understanding that it's more than just individual me in this world. 
Greg, what makes you optimistic that this time and this conversation will have a lasting impact and will be able to transition from words into actions to actual change? We're recording this interview in the first week of August. The events which took place were at the end of May, beginning of June. Usually when things happen, explode onto social media, they last for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks at tops, and then goes away, fades into the background. This is different. For more than two months, we've been, at least in Canada, if not around the world, but certainly in Canada, we've been having really deep conversations and taking a closer look at our society and what we're doing. That's what leads me to have a lot of confidence. When I partake in different Black Lives Matters rallies across the country, Blacks are nowhere close to being the majority of the crowd. It's our sisters and brothers who are not Black who are leading this. To me, something has fundamentally changed. This is what gives me great optimism, is that we are talking about it. We want to do something about it. Canadians very quickly, I realized, said, we don't want what's being offered south of us. This is not on to see a person being treated like a rag doll with a knee on his neck, even with other people saying, stop it, stop it. And obviously, George Floyd saying, you know, I can't breathe. But yet, for what's patently clear to people, that was just outright racism, kept that knee on that neck. We don't want any part of that. It offends us. It offends that just amazing, great Canadian sensibility of fair play. I find Canadians might not know exactly what they can do or should do, but they know that something needs to be done. I think it's been priced in now. The expectation is that governments, businesses, community organizations are going to do something about this. We don't know what, but just do something because we don't want to get to that point where we've seen what has happened elsewhere. I think also Americans have reached that point too in terms of seeking out change. They said, that's enough, but I can only really speak to the Canadian experience because I know it best. That's what gives me great optimism about where, where we're going and what we're going to achieve. The concept of Canada that is in all of us, we're just going to make that a reality in the years to come. Greg, it's been great hearing from you and your vision of not only what needs to change, but how we're going to get there. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate joining you. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jen DeHamel. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer and Andy Joy is our writer. Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the Conference Board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.